I had a very interesting experience on March the 1st, and it's um, entitled A Night at the Bardo. Now, the Marx Brothers um, reference should be clear, so you have to take in away everything that I'm now going to say with a slight grain of salt, because you should take everything uh, with a grain of salt. There's a wonderful passage somewhere in some philosopher I was reading, and he writes, um, it actually may be Kerouac, but I don't think it is. Uh, I think it's one of those who um, were derivative uh, and uh, in Kerouac's book, Some of the Dharma, and he writes, never overrate what you have received. So never overrate anything that you hear any uh, human being saying, and that goes for me. But it made a tremendous impression, this experience, and it relates actually to our understanding of the afterlife. The Afterworld, to quote Prince, that wonderful song from 1983, is it, uh, or 84, in um, Purple Rain, Let's Go Crazy, um, the prologue about the afterworld. I had an experience of the afterworld, which made me uh, confirmatory of some things I'd read, interestingly enough, and also um, provided a kind of, uh, a kind of you might call it a, a thrusting uh, instrument to talk with you about your own death and what it actually means and what it consists in and what um, lies beyond it because I had a kind of epiphany, a kind of waking, dreaming, sleeping picture of something that was very powerful. Here's the deal, and then I'll illustrate it with some passages of literature. And the deal was uh, we were on an airplane from um, Hong Kong to Chicago, and it was about a 13-hour flight, and you take an Ambien, of course. And today, you know, everything's changed. In the old days, you kept the windows open when you were crossing the Pacific because you were so interested. I mean, it was such an unusual experience, and you wanted to see the cloud formations. And sometimes very beautiful things could be seen, and the pilot might say, we are now passing over the Sandwich Islands, or we are now passing over some um, outlying area of Bora Bora. And uh, you, you never knew what you'd see, and it was thrilling and exciting and oriented to the sunrise and the sunset. But now everybody immediately closes their windows, and I had someone next to me who was very imperious, and it was very clear that I was not going to get that window open unless I was willing to confront, and I, of course, didn't feel like that. So we had the windows all closed. Why? So people could watch what was on the monitor in front of them, and uh, everyone was focused on the others or this or that or whatever was uh, – I think it was the office, actually. And um, so no one had any idea of what was going on outside. And um, the most interesting thing happened, because it was daylight the whole time. Uh, we all went to sleep, at least I did, very quickly. And I spent the next sort of 12 hours um, kind of shifting back and forth between a kind of a, a light sleep and a waking sleep, sort of just lying back and, and, and letting it roll over. It was somewhat conscious. And I kept uh, finding that all these uh, different things I've been thinking about kept coming to me, almost all of them associations. Almost all of them things to which I'm attached. Uh, a Beatles song followed by James Gould Cousins, followed by a passage in, um, you know, Jacques Demy, followed by some song by the animals, uh, followed by Attack of the Crab Monsters, followed, you know, what, what Kerouac calls the grinding movie in your mind that never ends, the grinding movie in your mind that he talks about in Dharma Bums and in other books. Uh, but it's a very true thing. This constant, never-ending, you know, uh, 
contrabass of uh, stuff. Uh, almost all images and fractious moments and thoughts and impressions, many of them from enthusiasms of mine, movies, songs, brandy or a fangirl. George Harrison, Gerald Freed, um, war. Um, then all sorts of other, just thousands and thousands of associations. And uh, this is what came to me. I had this feeling, you know, I'm trying to actually go to sleep. And sleep would be much preferable to this. But really, my mind is in a never-ending, somewhat low-grade um, ticker tape uh, of, of, of associative material, just never failing, going, going, going. And it's all kind of clustered in my mind's eye around the bed. Now, I'm not in a bed, but I, we, we, weren't, we weren't in, obviously, in, uh, in a, we were in an economy class. But because uh, we were near the kind of um, escape hatch, we had a little more room so I could use my suitcase up top and use it as kind of a, a rest for my feet. So I was almost in a sleeping position. And it was half asleep. And here was the picture. I had all these associations, and they were all crowding underneath this recumbent person, Paul Zoll, you know, this recumbent person, this ego. And they were just thousands and hundreds. It was like the scene in Young Sherlock Holmes when all the um, – when young Watson, I think he takes a, a psychedelic drug, and all the, the cream puffs in his mind. He's sort of fat, you know, and loves sweets, and all the cream puffs and the – chocolate tarts and the um, cakes come alive and in stop motion uh, kind of uh, dance around him in a scene. This is what his, his, uh, his bardo is. Now, the bardo is a, uh, is a word from uh, Eastern religion. Don't get, don't freak. Uh, it, the bardo is just another word really for purgatory. You don't freak either. Uh, the bardo is an Eastern word for what Christians in the Catholic tradition have usually meant by purgatory, which is sort of a place where all the things that you carried into your life that aren't really reconciled or ironically brought into the mainstream of whoever you are and are still sort of out there because they represent um, anger and uh, depressive affect and uh, cruelty and uh, bad vibes and memories and uh, memories of being a victim as well as memories of being a victimizer, you know, uh, Police cannot give a motive to the recent outburst of rage at a psychiatric hospital in Pittsburgh where so-and-so number of people died. I mean, they have no idea, these people, when they're reporting. It's all unconscious. There are these huge unconscious drives that are constantly in action all around us. Uh, uh, I saw a wonderful movie. I think it's, is it called Flaming Youth? No, it's not. It's a, it's Untamed Youth. It's from about 1957. And it was, uh, 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 it's sort of a camp classic from the fifties about a prison farm. It has Mamie Van Doren in it. And, uh, uh, it's really about a judge who was well into her fifties, who, who secretly, uh, she is, is a she, a female judge in California who secretly marries a dreadful sort of villainous character who runs a kind of modified prison farm outside her in the county and uh, this lovely well-meaning woman woman in her late 50s who's seen obviously in the movie as pathetic uh, all for love and for fulfillment and for being thought beautiful still in her 50s marries this absolute terrible person and the judge's own son from her first marriage has to confront him I mean it's a really Oedipal thing but you know you look at it and you say to yourself well this is what happens it's this poor woman she plays it very well there's something instinctive 
instinctual going on. It's beyond uh, any kind of rational processing. Uh, did, did she want to fall in love with this younger man who's actually using her, much younger man, who is against all her principles, who, who does things that are against, he's an absolute creep, and uh, he actually was a man who was in a John Ford movie called The Sun Shines Bright, but it's a dreadful uh, scenario, even back in the 50s. Well, these uh, things, can we help them? Can we help all these these things that happen to us and that happen from us and out of us. Uh, Jesus said that uh, evils of all sorts come from inside a man to outside. Well, I felt like all the evils of my uh, associative mechanisms, which cover a variety of hugely wide swath of psycholibidinal uh, experiences and uh, associations and affinities and attachments were surrounding me. Les Demoiselles de Rochefort. I mean, you could just go on and on. La peau douce. You could just go on and on. Manfred Mann, you can just go, you know, on and on, smoke on the water. You know, all these things. Well, do you know what I'm talking about? You have the same thing. I mean, are you any different? I mean, it's when all these different associations, and I'm just perhaps overly that way, but everybody has them, records, people, memories, personages, defeats, books, Childhood this, childhood that, it all crowds around just like those pies that come to life under Watson as he sleeps, I think is in a graveyard in young Sherlock Holmes. It's a brilliant scene in that film. Well, um, they were all crowding around, and this was all. This is sort of where I would live if I would, were dying. Uh, this is sort of the the, the ego. The, the what is it? Uh, the the aggregates of the ego self. Let's call it that. These were all aggregates of the ego self, based upon my own life, whatever it is, for whatever number of years I've had it and you've had it. And these aggregates were all around my bed, like the like the pastry shop come to dreadful life pushing themselves into young Watson's mouth so that he is nauseated by the very thing that he thought he wanted. Well, that's what was happening to me on this long flight from the Far East to um, Chicago, Illinois. And wow, well, I'm uh, wanting to say that that is really uh, what our ego self is that, that dies. I mean, that's the person, that's the individual, that's, quote, Paul Zoll or you know, whoever, whoever you want to put the name is, Agnes Varda, that's you, that's me, Cass Elliott, you know, Dave Mason, that's us. So we have this thing, you know, and, uh, uh, but then I, 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 what was so interesting about the experience is they were separated from me. I was lying, whoever I am, was lying half recumbent on this, you know, with the windows closed. It's incredibly obnoxious person to my left and wonderful Mary to my right, one seat, two seats over, because she wanted to be as far away as possible, rightly so, from my companion, traveling companion, um, unwelcome. And there you have it, uh, these crowded people around the bed, and then there's something who's looking at it from afar. There's me who's looking down at it or looking down to it. Now, it immediately reminded me of those medieval paintings. Now, here's where the kicker comes in. It reminded me of those medieval paintings that are in innumerable in forms in uh, churches, mostly in Europe, which are old enough to have them. And they always are uh, portraits of a man who's dying, and the priest and his wife and so forth are there. They're usually 15th century, 14th century, 16th century even, sometimes even in Catholic countries later than this. And the man is dying, and uh, all these demons are crowded around the bed. The priest is there with the crucifix and the host of the Eucharist, and the people are crying, and the, it's a, devil, a fight for the soul. There are all these devils 
falls underneath the bed, and there's the family who really don't count, and there's the priest with the host of the Eucharist and the cross. And what's going to happen is something called the soul is going to come out of the man's uh, mouth, and you sometimes see it. And will it be taken by the angels up to heaven, or will it be taken dragged down by the pastries in the Spielberg movie and taken into the place of, uh, shall we call it, karmatic uh, ego aggregates? Uh, take out the word karmatic. Use the word instamatic. Uh, ego aggregates, which are down there, where's it going to go? And I said, oh my gosh, this is this is sort of my visual little momentary march the first 2012 uh, expatiation of all these paintings I've seen, even in Protestant churches in Germany and um, uh, and in other Protestant countries where they kept the churches, they, they would keep the paintings before the great change of the fi- late 1500s or mid-1500s. And the paintings are there, which are a rebuke to justification by faith, needless to say, but uh, very powerful. Very powerful, and uh, the, my night, uh, uh, the, my, my night um, at the Bardo, was very similar to these poor characters' nights uh, before they die, where the artist has shown from a distance what is actually going on, and the ego aggregates versus the wholeness of the absolute love of God and mercy and absolution of God. Which will it be? That's the end of uh, Things to Come with Raymond Massey. Which will it be? Um, well, uh, there was it. Now I'm going to read uh, with uh, staccato hopes two um, uh, very striking uh, examples of this, and they occur with kind of devastating clarity in uh, three novels. But I'm only going to read two. Don't worry. Of Aldous Huxley, and in the novel The Devil, uh, The Genius, and The Goddess, on page 168, the very conclusion, um, the hero is reflecting on uh, Henry Martin's, the famous genius who's now dead, and he's reflecting on what really happened. They're talking about what actually happened at death. This is a very courageous novel because Huxley's trying to understand what actually happens at your death. What is going to happen when you die of, you know, prostatic cancer or uh, pancreatic cancer or um, your, 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 your uh, whatever it is that finally leukemia or even for that matter the heart attack that takes Uncle Eustace in that brilliant novel also by Huxley called Time Must Have a Stop and it takes him so unawares but it could take you unawares so just this week someone whom I know um, mother uh, was reported to have died at a quite a young age of uh, cardiac failure it was not expected now here we um we uh, say about Henry Martins on page 167, The Genius and the Goddess. Now, um, uh, before he died, uh, he, he had sort of gone way back into some kind of strange place before the man actually died, and now we hear what happened at death. Where did he go near the end? Well, I guess he went into some kind of infantile burrow in his subconscious, I suppose. Outside, for all to see, was his stupendous clockwork, that that monkey, that undiminished blaze of intellectual power, but inside there lurked the miserable little creature who still needed flattery and reassurance and sex and a womb substitute. P.S., we're talking about... um, we're talking about the ego, the, the aggregates, the ego self's aggregates. Inside, we hear, of Henry Martin's, there lurked the miserable little creature who still needed flattery and reassurance and sex and a womb substitute. The creature who would have to face the music on Henry's deathbed, that creature was still frantically alive and unprepared by any preliminary dying, totally unprepared for the decisive moment. Well, the decisive moment is over now, and... Whatever remains of poor old Henry is probably squeaking and gibbering in the streets of Los Alamos. 
or maybe around the bed of his widow and her new husband. And of course, nobody pays any attention. Nobody gives a damn. Quite rightly, let the dead bury their dead. Now, the ego aggregates, uh, when Henry died, Henry sort of died. He's gone. But the ego aggregates are probably somewhere like those um, associations around my bed. Windy, who's, you know, uh, all the associations, all the different... Harvard 1972, all of that stuff uh, sort of uh, is probably crowding about the bed of his second wife's uh, new marriage or uh, the streets where he was famous, Los Alamos, New Mexico. And uh, the same uh, thing, interestingly enough, is stated in um, After Many a Summer Dies the Swan, uh, Huxley's slightly earlier novel, in which uh, he describes the death of uh, a fellow named Poor Old Pete, who was actually a very nice but very deluded young man who died very suddenly. And um, one of the people on page 329 says to Mr. Proctor, who's the voice of wisdom here, what has become of poor Pete? Well, to start with, said Mr. Propter slowly, I should say that Pete, Quay Pete, doesn't exist any longer. Super Pickwickian, Jeremy interjected. Now, I don't want to talk to you about what he meant by Super Pickwickian. That's interesting, but that's not essential. Mr. Propter went on. Pete's ignorance, Pete's fears and cravings, well, I think it's quite possible that they're still somehow making trouble in the world making trouble for the, everyone and everyone, especially for themselves, themselves in whatever form they happen to be taking. Well, if by any chance Pete hadn't been ignorant and concupiscent at the end, what then? Well, obviously, said Mr. Propter, there wouldn't be anything to make further trouble. And then he added, quietly quoting Towler's definition of God, the Magdalene. No, he, uh, he quoted Towler's definition of God. God is a being withdrawn from creatures, a free power, a pure working. Well, now that's something else. But what happened to dear old Pete, who, by the way, in the novel, if you read the novel, and I really recommend it, is actually saved before he dies. Pete finds the truth of life in a very deep and important way, needless to say, reminiscent to women. Uh, before he dies, he's very young. He's a young man. And um, nevertheless, uh, what happened to Pete? Well, we don't quite know. We don't want to lay odds, so he says. And this book is really not quite as faithful, you might say, from a believer's point of view as the later book, The Genius and the Goddess and others. But uh, because Aldous Huxley did, in fact, believe in a very luminescent and powerful uh, afterlife. But um, at least he said he did very clearly in his last book, The Island. But uh, the the key note for us was what he said in The Genius and the Goddess, the, the, um, the um, ephemera of the ego, the all these various identifications, attachments and associations to mom and to home and to tribe and to identity, in quotes, all those things, they're all lurking around the bedside, still making trouble for other people. What actually happens to us? Well, we, um, we go to love. It's Super 8 time. We go to love. We go to the unity of uh, the absolute. What Larry Darrell found at the um, two-thirds of the way, three-quarters of the way through uh, Razor's Edge, and in fact in the movie... It's very powerful. Death is a coming back to uh, the reality of God 
and uh, but it is a departure from all the ego attributes and associations and identifications which make life for most people a living hell by love possessed. Well, um, that was my little interesting story. I would want to say further to ask you about this. Think for a minute about all those, you know, journey. I mean, I can just listen. I can list ego identifications and attachments as long as you can stand. I mean, I can sit here and talk about, you know, in my own little personal life uh, of whatever number of years, I can list those kind of enthusiasms that have gone down the drain till you know where freezes over. I'm going to love you till the cows come home because I love you so. You know, I can do it till the cows come home. But it's going to mean absolutely, you know, you can too. That's the whole point. All these ego attributes and attachments and ideas, uh, all these rantings and hatreds and various different prejudices that you and I each have in our own different way because everybody has them. They just – they just take different forms, all the different wounds, all the different woundings, all the different scenes, all the different self-abuses, all the different – don't take that in any too specific a form. It's a generalized statement. We all abuse ourselves based on profound delusions just like poor old Pete who was actually very young when he died or Henry Martins who was very old when he died and all he really cared about was his medals he got from learned societies as well as a few other very disreputable aspects of his life that he kept well hidden, but not ultimately hidden because nothing is hidden. So there we are. Paul Zoll, in quotes, uh, has joined his uh, puff shop, his vast bakery of animated stop-motion things he likes, which taken in their actuality and in the way they are meant to fulfill needs that cannot be satisfied of the ego, they stuff themselves in his mouth, and he gags on the chocolate eclair he thought he loved like little young Watson. Well, that's um, what uh, we don't want to happen at death. We want to leave all that behind to merge with that which is the Thomas Cole unity of good, mercy, absolution, love, which we do see in the uh, terribly striking and uh, countercultural way that Jesus dealt with people who were carrying long chains of Marley-type ego accretions in which he said the Son of Man came to save the lost. We are lost, lost, lost. Save me, to quote the Fleetwood Mac. And uh, we hear there a kind of an interest in in uh, in clearing all that stuff from under, whiting it all out, and uh, all the ego attributes so purgatory can no longer be a really fun night at the Bardo. And we can... Um, really rise to that which gave us birth and which is ultimately always love. I mean, it is always love. I was fascinated that E.A. Burt, the completely unknown philosopher um, from, was it Cornell in the, until like in the 70s or even 80s, he, uh, poor man, no one listened to him because as an academic philosopher, when he'd started out very well known and very influential in the pragmatistic American philosophy, but he made the terrible mistake of introducing the category of love to philosophical inquiry in his mid-period career when analytic philosophy had completely taken over. Are you kidding? Love? Is that a philosophical category? I mean, what? 
And poor E.A. Burt was never heard from again. Uh, and people used to laugh when he was in his 80s when they'd meet him at a, some kind of a picnic or something. They'd say, you mean e- Ned Burt? You're the guy who wrote this book and that book? And he just had lovingly become a Quaker and kind of a lay Eastern-type thinker. Needless to say, his parents had been Protestant missionaries in China. Does that surprise you? Uh, I, not the China part, the Protestant missionaries. Does that surprise you? He, he felt that his father had made a terrible mistake in uh, living a, quote, life of faith in which he uh, went off to China without any support, believing that God would provide every... But he, good as that may be, he, uh, the, the man had applied it to his children, and E.A. Burt resolved never again. But nevertheless, he, was, uh, he ultimately was a liberal Protestant, but he introduced the category of love. Now, God knows, don't do that. But that's what I'm doing. I'm talking about the, 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 the quality from which and to which, and that's what I wanted to talk about. So, A Night at the Bardo, I told you a little bit about my terrible cream puff time that was really quite haunting. Very, very haunting. I said, oh my gosh, all these things. I did have, a few of them survived the transit. That is to say, a couple of things that I'd done as a kid came back. The innocent things, the things that involved separation, things that I did for myself. You know, everybody did a few things for yourself as a kid. There were a few things you did when you were in your college years that weren't entirely out of some kind of duress, peer pressure on the one hand, or trying to please mom and dad in some deep sense. Uh, every so often somebody actually does something that implies uh, uh, you know, um, autonomy and independence, and it's a great and wonderful thing, like the ending of, uh, what is it, um, the dark at the top of the stairs when the little boy has to separate from his mother. He's 10, but he has to separate from his mother. And he finally takes his, his uh, piggy bank with all its pennies and quarters and nickels and dimes. This is the depression. This is the depression. And he takes it. Uh, he knows his mother can hear him in the other end. And he takes it and smashes it against the wall, the 10-year-old boy or 11-year-old boy. And all the change falls to the ground. And he gathers it up. And he says, I'm going to spend this for myself. I've collected it. Uh, it's my money. And I'm going to go to Frankenstein. He wants to go down and see Frankenstein with May. Clark and Colin Clive. Isn't that wonderful? Down at the local cinema in Kansas or wherever it is in Oklahoma, and he, he does it for himself. And fortunately, his mother gets the idea, and off he goes, and he's able to finally um, betake himself to his own good uh, leading. And that's the part that probably doesn't gather around the bed. If he were dying on that flight from Cathay, whatever it was, uh, <laughs> Cathay Westward uh, oh, oh, Airlines, he, he, he would probably, that, that broken uh, piggy bank probably was not under his bed. That was probably cradled in his arms as he ascended to heaven, this young man later on, because that represented that which is ultimately super eight and powerful and important. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with me, uh, I'm probably going to put a new intro to this podcast in a few weeks uh, with the help of a very nice friend who's a professional, and I'm probably going to put a new intro, uh, which will restore the music that we've used in the past and give a few little clues to it, and also a, a, a postlude that I absolutely love. But we're not quite there yet, but I'm hoping in a few weeks I'll be able to put something in with musical nature that will also every week include the podcast address. If you want to write me or talk to me about your own night at the Bardo, why don't you write me, Simon and G? Call, write me. Uh, and it's PZ's podcast at gmail.com. That's PZS without an apostrophe. PZS, P O D C A S T, at gmail.com. And if you'll write me, I'll write you back. And I'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts and your reflections. I really, really want that. And you'll help me because I'll, I'll, I'll help me, girl, because I'm going insane. Now, here's a contest. Who sang that? Help me, girl. You got to help me, girl. 
he, he, we're talking about blue-eyed soul here. But anyway, um, write me. Tell me what you think. Tell me a little bit about your night at the Bardo, but you might as well call it your night in the Counter-Reformation uh, um, paintings of death on crutches. You may be able to tell me about your picture of purgatory, and you may in fact have had some terrible waking dream or even a nightmare recently in which you saw all those those uh, those uh, pies, um, guava pies, stuffing your face and finally suffocating you and killing you, which is actually what they ought to do, because then you could rise to life immortal. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this has been interesting. I've had fun doing it, especially the part about God bless you and hugs. I wish I was a spaceman, the fastest guy alive. I'd fly you around the universe in Fireball XL5. Way out in space together, compass of the sky. My heart would be a fireball. Be a fireball.